thank you for your word, Father. Thank you that it is nothing but the blood of Jesus that makes us right with you, Father. Pray that you'd help us to see that this morning in our passage. Father, pray that as we look at the Lord Jesus, Father, pray that he would walk off the pages of Mark's gospel into our lives, into our hearts. And Father, help us to be changed through what we hear this morning. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Do you see God as a policeman or a parent? As a loving father or as law enforcement? It's not an exaggeration to say that how you primarily picture God, how you see God, will massively affect not just your approach to God, but also your entire life. If you're a believer in God this morning, I'm not assuming everybody is, but if you are, how you see God will decide what kind of person you will be. If you see God as a big policeman in the sky, what sort of a believer will you be? Well, surely you'll end up seeing yourself, even as a browbeaten criminal, never being able to live up to the strict rules that your heavenly policeman enforces, always on the run from God. Well, you actually end up a mini policeman yourself. You know what I mean? Whose job it is to go out and find other people's sin and expose it and denounce it and pass judgment on it. The scary thing is that I know believers who act like that. Self-appointed sergeants. Who come to church not to serve, but to storm. Who read the Bible not to grow, but for ammunition with arguments with other people. Who listen to sermons to judge their soundness, rather than to sit under God's word and let it change their minds. Now there were people like this in Jesus' day. They were called the Pharisees. And when you look at their words and their behaviour, they can sound scarily like a caricature of church down through the ages, can't they? But whereas Jesus welcomes tax collectors and sinners, as we saw a couple of weeks ago, he had no time for Pharisees. It was then he identified as the dangerous element, actually, of his day. And in the end, it was not the tax collectors and sinners who nailed Jesus to the cross. It was the Pharisees. And in our passage this morning, Jesus has another running with this group. And as usual, they're trying to act as self-appointed policemen. They're to judge Jesus and his disciples. But Jesus is having none of it. The presenting issue is the Sabbath, and we're going to see with our first point, that it's not just what is lawful, but who is Lord. Have a look with me again at verses 23 to 28. One Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the disciples were saying to him, look, why, what are they doing? What is not, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? he said to them, have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of Abiathar the priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for anyone but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, the Sabbath was not made for man. Sorry, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord, even of the Sabbath. The presenting here, uh, issue here is the Sabbath. Jesus and his disciples are out for a walk on a Saturday, and as they walk through a field of corn, the disciples start to pick some of the corn and eat it. Perhaps in the way that in the UK you might go through, uh, during the autumn, pick uh, blackberries off the side of the, the road or off the side of where you are. There was nothing illegal about it. The Old Testament scriptures specifically said that you could do this in someone else's field. The only stipulation there was that you couldn't use a sign. You know, you could go to your next week, because they start actually harvesting their crop. 
That would have to be taking the mick, wouldn't it? But the Pharisees look at this, and they're indignant. Look, they're doing what's unlawful on the Sabbath. Now, from Friday night to Saturday evening was the Jewish Sabbath. God had laid it down in the Ten Commandments, a day a week to be set apart, devoted to him. So Exodus 20, verses 8 to 10, you'll find it on the back of your notice sheets. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner within your gates. We see that as to be a day of no work. But what is work? Is childcare work? Can you just send your kids off on, on the Sabbath and leave them somewhere else? Is travelling long distance work or is that only if you work as like a, a lorry driver? Is playing sport work? Or does that depend whether you do it professionally? As you might imagine, there was some disagreement over the exact meaning of what that meant of work. So the Jews of Jesus' day, especially the Pharisees, came up with a solution. They would break it down into smaller chunks so you could sort of look at it and see what was work, what wasn't. They came up with 39 separate categories of work. They built it as a sort of extra layer around this commandment to make sure you definitely didn't break it. They did that with lots of other commandments as well. And these 39 categories covered everything from plowing to untying shoelaces. They specified how many characters you could rub out on a, a manuscript before that was classified as working on it. Um, they specified as well how far you could walk on the Sabbath before it was work. And one of the things that they specified was reaping. And they defined it something like this. Severing the plant from its source of growth. That's certainly how it's defined now. Those 39 categories still exist in Orthodox Judaism. The disciples were doing just that, though, weren't they? They were taking something from its life source, taking it from the corn. So by the Pharisees' definition, they were breaking the law. But were they really breaking the Bible's law? Well, Jesus answers them, but his answer is quite surprising, really. I mean, you could have argued that plucking ears of corn is not actually work. The Pharisees have made up these rules, but the Bible makes no such specific claim. So it's your rules, not the Bible's. But he doesn't. He could have used the occasion to expose the craziness of them putting their own rules over God's, but he didn't. Instead of sort of going for that, he goes instead of the example of King David. And really, he uses it to teach more about himself, really, than about the Sabbath. In 1 Samuel 21, David and his men are on the run from King Saul, who's seeking to kill him. He and his men are hungry, and when they come to the tabernacle, where it was at the time, and to the high priest, they convince the high priest to give him and his men some of the bread that was used in the tabernacle. Now that bread was just reserved for priests. It wasn't allowed to be eaten by anyone who wasn't a priest at the time. But in the Bible, there are no consequences for David and his men in doing this. The way it's worded in 1 Samuel seems to suggest that David did not act wrongly in taking the bread for his men, even though it's laid down in the law that he wasn't allowed to do it. And it's this story that Jesus uses in his defense, which is interesting, isn't it? It's almost as though he's saying, well, look at King David and look at me. If it was okay for King David's men to break the priestly laws, then it's okay for my men to do so. 
He's putting himself in the role of King David. He's putting himself in the same category. I mean, after all, he calls himself the son of David, the Christ, the Messiah. And if it was okay for David, then it should be okay for his Lord. Now, quite a lot of commentators give the answer that it's not to do with that. It's to do with the compassion to the poor and the needy uh, versus their reading of the law. Now, there is a case to be made for that, but this is not the case that Jesus makes. It's not that Jesus' disciples were starving as they went through the cornfield. It's not that they were particularly hungry. We're not told those details. And David's actions wouldn't justify just anybody who was hungry, waltzing up to the temple and saying, well, I'm really hungry, give me the consecrated bread. They couldn't do that. This was not just some random person, this was the great King David. And now here is the greater King Jesus. So Jesus' answer is to do with his identity, not with his poverty. He's showing them that he actually has the rules to, the authority to change the rules altogether. That's the kind of authority that he has. He doesn't actually do anything wrong, neither do his disciples, but he makes the claim that he could do, if you like. He has the authority to change the rules. He's about to say he's Lord of the Sabbath. The day belongs to him. It's up to him how it's used. But before we get to Jesus being Lord of the Sabbath, just a quick aside about Abiathar. Some people down through history have had a real bee in their bonnets about Jesus talking about him. Because Abiathar at the time wasn't the high priest. Actually, it was his father, Ahimelech was the high priest. And it is an important issue, isn't it? If Jesus, as we've been seeing, has been making claims that he's God, that actually if he can't even get his facts straight about a book that he claims to have written, then there would be an issue. But the truth is that there's no mistake here at all. Various answers have been suggested over the years, but the most sensible is just to look at the original. It literally says how he entered the house of God, epi, that word, uh, Greek word there, Abiathar the high priest. Jesus uses the same word in construction in Mark 12. Did you not read in the book of Moses, Epi the bush? It's a way really of talking about a section of the Bible. So Moses is in the section of the bush. David is in the section of Abiathar when he was high priest. Because he goes on to be the sort of more famous one. It's not saying that he was high priest at the time. It's just saying that this account is linked with him and he was high priest. Anyway. Just that, if, that, if you were wondering on that question, just for that. But back to the main point, Jesus is saying that he is Lord of the Sabbath. That's actually what he goes on to say. If you look again at verses 27 and 28, and he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. The Sabbath, it's saying there, was a gift, a gift to humankind. It was made for people. It wasn't that God was tired on the seventh day of creation and thought, I should have a rest. Actually, he was setting down a pattern for us. He's graciously given us one day in seven to rest and enjoy his works. And the same is true for the Israelites. See, I bet there were no days off in Egypt, you know, where they were slaves. But God gave them one day off in seven for rest. And whatever we think about the Sabbath, whatever uh, view we take on it, it makes sense, doesn't it, to have a day off every week. I personally believe that every day, actually, in the New Testament, is now holy to God. That the line between secular and sacred space and secular and sacred time was broken down at the cross. That we obey the Sabbath commandments as we set the whole of our lives apart for God. That's part of 
the new wine that Richard was talking about last week. But believing all that, I still have a day off the week. Because that makes sense. That's how we're built. Whilst it's true that the Sabbath was given to us uh, as a gift, we're also designed for the Sabbath. We're designed to enjoy that gift. We fit into that one six-one uh, flow pattern, don't we? Did you know during the French Revolution they tried to change it? So you know that we got the metric system during the, the French Revolution. They tried to metricize, make metric um, everything, including the week. So actually they came up with a week that was decimalized uh, and had it as 10 days. And uh, they tried it for a little while, but actually it didn't work. It never took hold. Because actually people just couldn't function that way. We're not designed to work work for nine days and rest for one. We're designed to work for six days and rest for one. We're not built like that. As creatures, we need rest. And God wants us to take rest. Now, I don't talk about my views on the Sabbath uh, much. We'll see why in a few weeks' time when we're back in Romans, in Romans 14. But whatever our views on it, it makes sense to take rest. And we mustn't do what the Pharisees did with it. The Pharisees turned the Sabbath from a rest to a test. They turned it into an excuse to make more rules so that they could feel self-righteous and play policeman. But in doing so, they detached the Sabbath from its meaning and from its maker. They were so bothered with the law that they forgot the Lord who gave them it. So here we have the Lord of the Sabbath. The Lord of the Sabbath turns up and they're so convinced about their own rules. They're so lost in their labyrinth of laws that they're convinced that the Lord of the Sabbath has the Sabbath wrong. That's the situation the Pharisees have got themselves into. They're so into their own roundabout rules that they can't see the purpose behind those rules anymore. They've just got into keeping them. Actually, instead of using them to glorify God, they're just using their rules to attack people. That's what they're doing. So we mustn't detach the rules from our ruler or precepts from their purpose. We don't have a faceless rule book. We have a relationship, don't we, with God. Are there rules? Well, yes, there are. But relationships can involve rules too, can't they? Sometimes we can take that distinction of relationship and rules too far, can't we? I have rules for my children. I punish them when they break them. But I hope that they don't just not break uh, break the rules for fear of punishment. I hope that they don't just keep the rules so they can sort of feel like they've got one over on their sibling. You know, what, I'm better than that. I hope that they keep the rules because they love me. And that they know that any rules that I lay down for them are for their good. But the Pharisees desperately did not see it this way. For them, the rules were just a ticket to heaven and an opportunity to feel superior about the people around them. They kept them because they thought they were earning righteousness points with their policeman God, or wages from their employer God for good service. What they didn't see was God as the loving Father, who had shown them the way to live for their good. For their good. The Sabbath was made for man. But for them, the Sabbath was not not for, for man, it was made for management. Controlling, nitpicking, judging, and feeling superior. Can we take that same attitude sometimes to the fatherly rules that God has laid down? Detach them from the love of the Lord and use them as a weapon against others in our minds? 
in our words? Do we use them to tear down rather than to build up? Jesus did challenge people on their behaviour, but he did so out of love, not out of legalism. And he is Lord of those rules. He decides how we are to use them. So it's not just about what is lawful, but who is Lord? Jesus is Lord. And we need to use the rules like him. But as we start to explore that, there's a second element that comes to how we relate rightly to God with these things. There's just two points today, because our second point. Not just what is lawful, but what is loving. Have a look with me at chapter 3, verses 1 to 6. Again he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, Come here. And he said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him, how to destroy him. Jesus here enters the synagogue. It's the Sabbath. And the Pharisees are watching him. Not to learn from him, but for ammunition to accuse him. They've made up their minds already. They want him gone. Jesus here, no, takes the initiative. He calls the man with the withered hand to himself and then addresses the synagogue. Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or harm, to save life or to kill? Well, what's the answer? Surely it's blindingly obvious, isn't it? Blindingly obvious, to do good, to save life. But these guys are so wrapped up with their rules and their regulations that they can't even say it's right to do good on the Sabbath. That's how wrapped up they are with their, their own laws. These guys want to represent God, and they can't even say to do good is right, because their rules won't let them. What sort of a picture does that portray of God to the world? If those who claim to follow it can't even declare good right and evil wrong, because of a technicality in their code. And yet, isn't Jesus, uh, uh, sorry, isn't, yeah, isn't this how Jesus and God have been portrayed through the years? A nitpicking, pedantic policeman who cares more about rules than people. This sort of attitude actually makes Jesus the kindest, gentlest, meekest man who ever lived angry. Notice that? Angry. He's grieved, distressed, sorrowful over their blind, callous, stupid hearts. That word can be translated all those ways. They've said that God can't perform a miracle on the Sabbath because it's God's day. Think about that. As though they know better than God. As though their man-made additions to the law could destroy the spirit of the law. I mean, why is there a Sabbath at all? It's not just there as a day off, though it is there for that, but it's there to point us to the coming rest. Here's a long word for you. It's eschatological. That means it's to do with the end things, the end of all things. The Sabbath points us to a rest that was begun by Christ, a rest from our works as a way to get to God. So Matthew 11, verse 28. Come to me all who labour and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. We don't come to God by trying hard, but by resting in what Christ accomplished on the cross. 
But it's a rest that will finally be completed in glory when Jesus comes again. When we'll finally enjoy, along with creation, what we were made to be. And enjoy that seventh day rest for eternity, a day without end, like the one in Genesis 2. But if the Sabbath is there to point us to the glory to come, the new creation, then why can't Jesus heal on the Sabbath? Actually, isn't it more fitting for him to do it then? as it points forward to a time when there'll be no more pain or suffering. But the Pharisees don't see it like that. They have their rules to help them be holy, so they think. And Jesus isn't playing by their rules. Therefore, Jesus is bad and has to go. The mini-policemen have their suspect. They caught him red-handed, so they think. And now all that awaits is the opportunity to arrest and execute him. And here is the irony of the passage. How do they use their Sabbath? Do you notice that in verse 6? The Pharisees went out and immediately, same day, held counsel with the Herodians against him, how to destroy him. Because Jesus isn't doing the right thing on the Sabbath, they use their Sabbath to plot murder. Is it lawful to do harm on the Sabbath? Well, they've gone so far down their own rabbit hole of rules that they now think that's okay. And to top it all off, they want to do it with their enemy, the Herodians. The Herodians wanted King Herod's dynasty to live on. But King Herod wasn't an Israelite. He was an Edomite, and he was in Caesar's pocket to make it even worse. He was sort of put there to annoy the Jews, really, rather than to help them, to sort of show them who's boss, we can put him in charge. So whilst they criticise him for healing, they plot murder. Whilst they scorn him for spending time with tax collectors, they collude with the tax collectors' bosses. No wonder that Jesus labelled these people hypocrites. But before we come down too harshly on them, remember that we as Christians are so often prone to their traits. I mean, it's not like Christians down through the ages have done terrible things to one another, thinking that they're bringing glory to God. It's not like Christians are ever hypocritical. And it's not like we've ever misrepresented God to the world as some sort of cosmic killjoy. Of course we have. We look at other people and judge, don't we? That's some of you were thinking it just then. The very fact that we look down on the Pharisees for these things, while doing them ourselves, is just more evidence of our hypocrisy, isn't it? We look down on them. We're doing the same thing. So how do we guard against this? How do we stop ourselves falling into the Pharisees' trap? Well, it starts with our view of God. If we are believers this morning, God is not our policeman. He's our loving Heavenly Father. And it means, therefore, that God is not out to get us. He's out to help us. God is for us, not against us. He's not looking for an excuse to bring us down. He wants to see us built up. He wants to see us thrive. We are family. And he's working for our good. Your good. When God looks at us, so to speak, he has a smile on his face. We are his children. We are the apple of his eye, it says in the Psalms. And if we are to reflect his character then we're to treat one another that way as well, aren't we? 
not as potential criminals to accuse, but brothers and sisters to build up. The Pharisees cared nothing for Jesus' disciples as they scolded them for Sabbath breaking. They cared nothing for the man with the withered hand in need of healing. All they were focused on was their own rules. But they'd forgotten the purpose behind those rules. But we mustn't. We must remember why they're there. Jesus says the whole law hangs on love God and love your neighbour. But we see from their actions and their words that they do neither. It's not love, it's legalism. So as we interact with one another, are our actions characterised by the love of the Father or by legalism and lawmaking? Do we want to see each other built up, thriving, growing? Or are we just looking for the next mistake so we can feel a bit better about ourselves compared to them? And if we do want to see each other thriving and growing, what are we doing about it? How are we helping one another? Sometimes that might mean comforting words. Sometimes that might mean hard words. Sometimes that might mean sacrifice on our part. But isn't that a reflection of what a loving father does? Those things, sacrifice, care, sometimes harsh words. So is there no truth to the policeman part? Well, if you're not a believer in the Lord Jesus, the Son of God, uh, this morning, then the Bible says you don't have God as your Father. Sure, you might have come from him, but you don't have that relationship with him. Someone put it, it's the difference between fatherhood and paternity, if you like. Different relationship. But that means that you meet the Christian's father doing his day job, so to speak, which is a policeman, judge, jury, lawman. We saw a glimpse of that, didn't we, with Ahab and Jezebel earlier on in the children's talk. God does judge. It's his business to judge, and that's a good thing. It's right what happened to conniving Ahab and Jezebel. We cheer when they get their comeuppance. The problem is, though, that we are all guilty. And the sentence is worse than the glory bits that I couldn't tell the children. It's eternity away from God and all that is good. But judge is not God's primary identity. It's not the core of his being. This is a role he's had only since sin came into the world. If there's no sin, there's no judge. But he's been father for eternity. And for the Christian, he goes from judge to father. He pays our penalty. He cancels our conviction. He gives us the not guilty verdict. And he adopts us into his family. And that offer of adoption is open to all. He doesn't have to be your policeman and judge. He can be your parent. He can go to being just Lord of the Sabbath to being your Lord. From healer of withered hands to healer of withered hearts. How? Well, we've had a clue in our passage, haven't we? By resting from our works. By acknowledging that nothing we've done, good or bad, gets us anywhere. Instead, it's about turning and trusting in the Lord Jesus and what he's done. Turning from our old way and turning to Christ. And then we get a new view of God, don't we? Not the one the Pharisees have, with God as the policeman and enforcer, but God as precious Father. Let's pray that God would help that image stay in our mind. Now let's pray. Father, well, thank you that even though you are judge of the world, Father, thank you that you adopted us into your family if we trusted in the Lord Jesus. Father, thank you that you 
are our heavenly parents. And Father, we know that that means that there are rules, Father, there are things that you want us to do and not to do. Father, help us to live in line with that. Not out of fear, <laughs> Father, but out of love for you. Help us to care for one another and see uh, one another thriving and growing out of love for them and love for you. And we ask these things.